Thank you guys for being patient. Let's take our, our Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy. Also known as Dude, you're on to me. Sorry, I think that's hilarious. It never gets old for me. I think it's great. We're actually going to pick up in chapter 18. Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this time together. Uh, We thank you, God, for the book of Deuteronomy. We thank you, Lord, for all it proclaims about your goodness and how you go about providing success for people and how you are teaching the hard lesson of obedience. Uh, Lord, we ask for mercy and our understanding. We pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see all that is before us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, what we've been dealing with is a chiasm of leadership. And if you remember what a chiasm is, chiasm is a literary device where you will have a structure like this that will come in. And the idea is is that A and A apostrophe, B and B apostrophe will parallel one another and it leads to a pinnacle point. And so what we dealt with here was the idea of when they install a king. Uh, If you remember, we had the idea of judges here at the A portion. Down here, there were, there were judges, yes, but they were also likened unto prophets that paralleled one another. And then here you have Levites and Levites. And so, just to make sure, we've been talking about that structure for quite a while. If you've missed out on some of these or you're curious about some of the background, we actually have a hidden uh, website in order for this with all of the teaching that we've done on Deuteronomy up to this point. And so it's gbcportage.com slash... D-E-U-T, and that'll take you directly to it. There is no link on the site to get to it or anything like that, so just make sure that you guys have it if you've missed some of that stuff. And so what we're picking up at right now is the portion starting in chapter 18, verse 9, that deals with uh, instructions to people regarding orthodoxy within their community. And this has underlying uh, implications for what prophets would later do. So understanding this little section here, would give some discernment or some understanding regarding the whole idea of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all of those guys, understanding what it is that they're doing. There's a picture that's being painted now, uh, and it's no surprise that it comes from liberal theology, that what the prophets were in the Old Testament were actually social justice warriors. They were actually people that were coming in, trying to set some sort of economic precedence Uh, They were guys that were coming in to talk about how the the treatment of the poor was so unfair. Uh, The the issue is much, much bigger than that. How you treat people is reflective of a heart issue, period. And so what prophets are concerned with is they're concerned with dealing with the heart. And when the heart is not voluntarily submissive to the creator God of all things, but most particularly in how Deuteronomy shows us, his word, his word, his word, his word. His word is always the focal point of that situation. When the heart is not submissive to that, of course you got people treating people badly. That's the whole reason how we're in the situation that we are today in society. It's a rejection of God's word, a corruption of the heart. People refuse to be submissive. So, in chapter 18, verse 9, we, we start dealing with this section. When you enter the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations you will not do the repulsive acts or worshiping protocols of pagans is what it's dealing with pagan is not a bad word pagan is dealing with the idea of godlessness 
as opposed to the one true God who's created all things and who has spoken into history. Um, verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to Yahweh. And because of these detestable things, Yahweh your Elohim will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before Yahweh your Elohim. This is the whole beginning section that we were talking about. So notice that, let's look at some of the things of what characterizes the land of Canaan before Israel marches in and God begins to deliver the land to them. Some things that we look at. Notice the very first thing, we talked about this at length last week, was the idea of child sacrifice, actually coming to the point where you put your children to death because you're trying to appease another deity. And often what's, what's translated, or sorry, what's associated with that is what's known as the false god of Molech. You can find that in Jeremiah 32. The next one here is the idea of divination. And what that is, is asking essentially for little g gods to give you insight or revelation into something. Now, little g gods are fallen celestial beings. I don't know that I'm comfortable calling them angels from more stuff that I've researched. I encourage you to look into that. But usually the way our thinking goes is, well, what happened was, is that Lucifer decided that he, being prideful, was going to be like God. And so he rebelled against God and he took a third of the angels with him. Have we all heard this? Yeah. Okay, and we, we've all subscribed to it, usually wholeheartedly. Anybody know what book that information's found in? No. Revelation. We're told about it in Revelation. We're told about it in a book that is unfolding for us, the tribulation in the end times. Okay? Now, could it be referring to a past historical event? Yes. Uh, but I'm convinced, and let's find it real quick. Let's find it real quick. Let's go to Revelation. I'm convinced that this chapter in Revelation is the hardest chapter in all of the Bible to interpret. There are many, many problems there. And again, I don't want to sit here and throw the hook out, but we're not going to necessarily look at it uh, as far as pulling it apart. It's chapter 12. Let me see it here. Yeah, chapter 12, verse 4. Let's start in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now there's a lot here to ask the question, who's the woman? What's the child? And does everybody notice that the angels don't voluntarily fall? They're, known, they're called stars, and it's the fact that the dragon's tail sweeps them out of the sky and casts them to earth. Does everybody see that? Now, we know who the dragon is, right? Do we? Satan. Satan. Okay, good, good. We're on that, okay? So we, we all got that down. But notice that it's not something to where, it's, you know, the way that we've normally pictured it or been taught it is, well, they kind of have, hey, guys, come with me. And they get, like, led astray because of temptation. Angels are like, yeah, let's rebel against God. He didn't let me have my coffee break or whatever. And so they go down, and the next thing you know, they're judged and they're cast out. 
Notice that it's Satan is the dragon whose tail cast down a third of the stars. Are the stars angels? If you deal with Hebrew ideology and what they thought about astronomy, the Hebrews would go out and they would look up at the sky. They believe that the stars in the sky are angels being fixed in a place as God's luminaries over the night. So I, something to think about. But notice it's not just a quick cut and dry answer there. Okay? We don't know that these stars are angels. We'd have to do much more intensive study, verse by verse, comparing scripture with scripture to come to a case. Now, why do I say all that? Because there are beings that exist that are creations of Yahweh, but they are not the role of angels, and they are celestial in their makeup. Angels are messengers. But when we talk about little g gods, we are talking about some sort of beings and what it's often called, uh, let's see here, uh, Psalm 92, uh, Psalm 97, I think it is, maybe Psalm 88, is the divine counsel of God where he actually meets with them and they've been given charge over all of the Gentile nations of the earth. This is why there's so much problems with the king of Tyre that you're dealing with later on. That's why there's, whenever Daniel is giving this prayer and there's such delay that's going on because there's war going on and we're praying over kings. We're talking about kings and rule and authority and all of it surrounds about what is it to have a government that dominates the earth. And you find that these celestial beings, whatever they are, are held accountable. If you ever want a book that will help you unfold some of these things, it's a pretty good book. It's The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Uh, H-E-I-S-E-R is his name. There's also a DVD on it uh, that you can get that's just an hour long. I know everybody's like, yeah, that's my ticket. I don't need a big, long book, which is fine. It's a good DVD. But you can also get online and you, uh, YouTube, and you can watch him lecture for free on this whole idea. And you know what? I don't believe everything that he has, but he brings up a lot of really good points that a lot of Old Testament scholars will not touch with a 10-foot pole. And I think as things in the Word of God, we need to. Like, for instance, does anybody know who the watchers are in the Old Testament? Look it up. The Watchers and Daniel. Interesting people. There's your homework for the Christmas season. The Watchers. Who are the Watchers? We won't have, uh, we won't have Sunday school for the next two uh, weeks, but if you want, get out of Strong's Concordance, look up the word Watchers, and then prepare to have your mind blown. This is a whole other thing, a whole other realm of the unseen that we just don't talk about. So when we talk about this idea of those who use divination, those who are appealing to little g-gods, this is something incredibly demonic beyond what we understand about, or, you know, the red devil ham pitchfork guy. It's way beyond that. Notice, one who practices witchcraft. Uh, there are some ideas of witchcraft, and if you see down there, um, uh, one who interprets omens and sorcerer, uh, the idea of sorcery there in witchcraft, a lot of that usually has influence of drugs or it has influence of mind-altering chemicals that someone ingests in order that they're not thinking straight, or they're hallucinating in some way uh, that is causing that. And again, all of it is, is intimately connected to the demonic. Uh, notice it says here, uh, interprets omens, uh, one who says, you know, cast your dice, and this is what it means there, that kind of thing. Yes, ma'am? I walked in late. Where are we? We are in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse. Very, we're going to start verse 11. Thank you. Okay. Or one who casts a spell, one who invokes a, a curse. Now, this just isn't Wingardium Leviosa, okay? This is not Harry <laughs> Potter. Let's not freak out about that real quick, okay? This is something, we're talking about something much more deep, much more demonic, much more crazy. Uh, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, a necromancer is the idea. Does everybody see the idea of medium and spiritist, what we saw in Isaiah 8? 
today is the whole idea. This is, this is when they needed counsel about how to get out of the darkness. This was the best that people can do. Let's find someone who's kind of creepy but seems to be involved in hyper-spiritual things, and then let's get our fill of knowledge of what we should do next from that. That's the way that the human heart is bent to find divine direction. And what you find here is they're saying, no, it's not to be that way in here, uh, in this situation. Look at verse 12. For whoever does these things is detestable to Yahweh. And because of these detestable things, Yahweh your Elohim will drive them out before you. In other words, everything about the land of Canaan was characterized by these practices. This is why whenever we look at a situation where we talk about harem, we talked about that last week, utterly destroying an entire situation or entire civilization of people. And we talk about that it spares no one. Man, woman, and child are to be put to death in that situation. We think, good grief, that's so cruel, I don't understand why. It's because we're looking at it from a human perspective and we're not looking at it from God's divine perspective. Obviously, for these people to be that guilty in this situation means that previously they had a high regard of revelation of what God had shown them and they had chosen to reject it. This is what brings about God's justice or his wrath in a situation in order to cleanse that land. They had defiled the land because they'd indulged in all this demonic spiritist nonsense. So that's the reason why we have such heavy language surrounding that. Animals too. Animals too, yep. I mean, it, pretty much the structures, they were allowed to live in those. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll be able to take from vineyards that you did not plant. I mean, they, they get the spoils afterwards. But yeah, anything that was like that, tearing down all the altars, all the ashram, these big, large fertility poles that were carved, Lord knows what was on those things. Uh, but anyway, burn it all to the ground. So verse 13, here's the declaration for the people. You shall be up right blameless before Yahweh your Elohim if you've got a marginal note there in your new American standard notice it says you shall be complete or you shall be perfect or having integrity that doesn't mean that their conduct was to be without sin that's not what we're getting at when the Bible says be perfect as your God is perfect it's talking about the idea of a completeness uh, or the idea of a maturity that is reached or walking in such ways integrity let's be honest you will get along much better with someone if you understand that when they are wrong, they admit they're wrong and they seek forgiveness for it, rather than some way who goes on about their business all the time and they will never admit that they're wrong. They're just always right. They're just always impeccable or perfect and they're always condescending to people when, they tried, when, they, when someone tries to point out where they're wrong or how they've hurt another person. You will find that the person that is more gracious more sensitive to those things, more humble to those things, is the person that you're going to gel with a lot better. Why? Because they're full of integrity. Because it's a sign of maturity to admit when you're wrong. And that's the idea that it gets at when it talks about blameless or upright living. It's not perfect living. It's seeking to do the right thing, and then when you fail to do the right thing, you're, you're quick to come to terms with it. Verse 14, As for those nations, and this is the Canaanite nations, which you shall dispossess, listen to those who, uh, sorry, uh, forgive me, for those nations which you shall dispossess, that's probably a better way for me to say it, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, Yahweh your Elohim has not allowed you to do so. In other words, words of guidance and wisdom are to come from nowhere else. Now, here's why this is important. Verse 15, Yahweh your Elohim will raise up for you a prophet. Notice that, one who is speaking the truth, like me from among you. Remember, this is Moses. 
from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Two things. Number one, this is a prophecy of Christ. Number two, the Hebrew idea of listening is not the American way of listening. Yeah, I heard that. That's not what it is. When you were listening as a Hebrew, it wasn't just that you were affirming the information that you had received it. It's that you were applying it to your life and walking forward in a different way. And you find this all throughout the Proverbs, all throughout the Proverbs. Listen to your mother and your father, you know, calling out for your sons. Do not walk in this way. Instead, you will heed the words of your mother and you will listen to the instruction of your father. That idea of listen is apply it to your life and be a better, more mature person because of the wisdom that's been instilled to you. It's the same idea here. So it says, verse 16, this is according to all that you asked of Yahweh, your Elohim, in Horeb. Anybody know what Horeb is? Mount Horeb is really what? Do we know? We know? We know? Sinai. Sinai. Good job. Yes. Anytime that Deuteronomy talks about Horeb or Mount Horeb, I think it's just mainly this is Horeb, it's, it's talking about Sinai, the mountain of Sinai. Okay, so where they went to receive the Ten Commandments. So notice, this is according to all that you asked of Yahweh, your Elohim, in Horeb and Sinai, on the day of the assembly. There was a certain day, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh, my Elohim. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Does everybody remember this instance? It's been a while since we've looked at it, so everybody put your finger here. Turn back to Exodus 20. And in Exodus 20, this is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Remember the pattern. This is why we can't mix works with faith in the church age. Because the people were set free by the sacrifice that was was given for them. They applied the blood by faith. They were led out of bondage. And then after a period of time, they learned instruction for the sake of obedience. Obedience was not a requirement. For them to be set free from the bondage going on in Egypt. By applying the blood, death passed over. Being set free, part and parcel of it, but happened afterwards. This is important for us to understand. So this is why today, theologically, we cannot mix works with faith. If you look at chapter 20 in Exodus, notice at verses 1 through 17, you're going to find an unfolding of the Ten Commandments initially given, or what's called the Ten Words. But what's interesting is the response of the people. Look at verses 18 and 19. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now, everybody's seen some pictures of this if you've hung out with Charlton Heston for any amount of time or whatever. But everybody's down at the base of the mountain, keeping their distance from that. They're looking up, fires coming off of the mountain, and they actually hear God speak audibly. God was not saying, Moses, tell them this. Moses, tell them this. That's not how it happened. He actually spoke to the entire children of Israel in a form where if you had one of these, you could have recorded it right then and there and played it back, okay? absolutely traumatic for them so they're seeing all this stuff going off they're hearing the voice of god verse 19 then they said to moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but let not elohim speak to us or we will die now think about that if we hear his voice again it will cause my life to end that's how that's how this situation played out it's hard for us to get in there and think of the emotion of it and I don't think the people were being dramatic at this time. I think it was a situation where they, rec- I think they were just in complete shock that they had heard God speak. 
and they recognize if something like this ever happens again, my breath will leave me, I'll kill over. A pretty crazy time. So notice he's referring back to this and notice what he's connecting here. He's connecting the coming of a prophet as they should listen and they should obey with the moment that they receive the message of obedience from Sinai. Does everybody see how they're connecting that together? And this is other things that help us bolster the idea of, of this prophecy of Christ. So back in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse 17, Yahweh said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is the Lord Jesus. Two things. Number one, if you've ever read John, you will see something that characterizes his ministry in the Gospel of John. I've came to do what the Father has sent me to do. I only do what I see the Father has done. And you see, you find this whole display, this perfect model of what it looks like for the Son to voluntarily submit himself under the headship of the Father. But another good thing we want to write down, if you want to put in the margin here next to this idea, because there's a heavy emphasis on, number one, notice, raise up a prophet, one who comes with a message. Notice, I will put my words in his mouth. That's important. He shall speak to them all that I command him. There are four instances there that are putting the emphasis on the substance of what is said in a situation to lead to obedience. Notice it's not about fireworks. It's not about tongues. It's not about miraculous healings. It's not about casting out demons. It's not about any of this other stuff that people get hung up on. It's about the words being full of integrity and instruction straight from God's mouth. If you want to write next to this Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, and then let's turn there real quick. A good verse for us to remember about the importance of God's word and, and, and how he's displayed it. Hebrews chapter 1. Remind me at the end, we're going to give away some presents for Christmas. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2. Give everybody just a second, I hear pages. Hearing pages is always a fun thing. No, I don't like clicks. Stop it. I know I looked over this morning and my wife's holding the baby and she's got their phone up and I'm like, no, but it's okay. I need to have grace. I'm sorry. Chapter one, verse one. God, after he spoke, notice the emphasis, long ago to the fathers in the what? In the prophets. So notice how we're going. Old Testament here, right? In many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in whom? His Son. Okay, now watch that. Jesus Christ is everything that God wants to say to us. So he says here, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And then it continues on about how Jesus is greater. He's the greatest. So here's what the point is. This prophet that's going to come about, speaking only what God has said, commanding only what God has told him, is going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to be part and parcel everything that God wants to say. This is why he speaks the words of God, but he is also called the word of God. Everybody see that? Maybe I'm the only person that's excited about it. But it's profound. It's profound to think that the way that God wants to communicate with you and me is words. 
It's not by miraculous deeds of healing as much as God can do that. He wants us to focus on his word, his word, his word, his word. That is the whole pinnacle. When he puts forward his son, he puts forward his son as the manifestation of his word. It's all about the word of God being manifested. Let me give you another instance real quick. I think this is important. Uh, turn over to chapter 4 of Hebrews. Now I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to ask you a trivia question. And if you get it wrong, I'm going to throw this marker at you. Okay? That's how we're going to do it. I'm just playing. <clears throat> just playing. Chapter 4, look at verse 12. 12 and 13. I'm going to read 12 and, four and 13. I'm going to ask you a question. For the word of God is living and active. Everybody see it? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What is the word of God? It's Jesus. Notice it's not the Bible. Notice it's not Scripture. Even though Scripture can accomplish those things like Jesus does. Notice that you deal with the personal pronouns in verse 13 of his sight and are laid bare to the eyes of him. He is the living and active two-edged sword that is able to divide soul and spirit. It is him as the judge. So notice he's likened to the word of God there it is so important that we understand that christ is the manifestation of everything that god ever wanted to say that's why one of the best things you could ever do to get a practical application of how we should live the christ life is to study christ's life is to really think about the idea of what does it look like to be in total perpetual submission to the father at all times it's a good good study so with all that being said and making an emphasis on that Go back to Deuteronomy 18. When we talk about the idea of a coming prophet, it's so significant because it deals with not because he heals people, not because he's casting out demons. That was all stuff, the signs that attested to the words that he spoke as being authenticated and true by God himself. But the focus is his word. It really is his word. Look at verse 19, chapter 18, verse 19. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That is personal responsibility, and that is certain judgment. In other words, if I'm going to go to great lengths to send a prophet who is going to command you everything that God says from himself, and let's be honest, because he is God saying it, and you do not listen, there's the personal responsibility aspect. It will be required of you. And sometimes that means as far as death is concerned, I personally think that it has much more to do with end times answering beyond being here and now breathing in the flesh. Uh, so it says here, verse 20, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, and if you don't remember chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, we dealt with presumptuous people, people who would not listen to the judgments of the judges and wanted to do what they wanted to instead of what the judge commanded them to do. And so therefore they suffered for that. For the one, the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or which he speaks in the name of ding, 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 there it is. 
other gods, little g, gods. In other words, the pagan deities that were invisibly ruling over the rest of the nations. That prophet shall die, period. That's what happens when you mishandle God's word. You, you say you're speaking in his name and you're actually not. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which Yahweh has, spoke, has not spoken? And that seems like a really good question because of the dire consequences that come with mishandling it. He says here, when the prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, which means that if the prophet does speak and it does come true, you ought to be afraid of that guy. Why? Because he's speaking directly for God. And there's, a, there's an air of reverence that needs to be happened. Now, there's a lot bundled here that we need to think critically about. Let's read it one more time. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, watch this, if the thing does not come about or come true, stop. What does that tell you about what a prophet might speak at any given moment? It has to what? What's that? Future events. It's a future event, yes. What else? It's imminent. It's imminent. In fact, it would have to happen. It would have to occur in that prophet's lifetime. For him to be held accountable. Why? Because if he misspeaks, he's supposed to be killed. So it's something that has to manifest itself in the prophet's lifetime. Now you might say, well, what about all these prophecies about Christ? Yes, those are spanning hundreds of years. Is that the only thing that those prophets ever prophesied? No, not by any means. In fact, they had a track record of speaking on behalf of God that gave their prophecies about the future coming deliverer the credibility it needed because of all the validity of his message in the here and now. So notice, if we were just to think about this, number one, this right here, verse 22, is a prophecy itself. Notice that some time passes in this, and that fulfillment has to happen in the prophet's time. Again, it's not about signs and wonders. It's about whether the words are true, and that's how you know. And if they're not, you are responsible, Israel, to take decisive action, pick up a stone, and bash this guy in the head until he dies from bleeding. Serious stuff. Very serious stuff. Any questions about that before we venture into 19? Because 19 changes. Does prophecy always refer to or mean foretelling future? No. Context always determines meaning. That's always a principle of interpretation. For instance, when you get into what we're going to be looking at in the next couple of months uh, coming up, spiritual gifts. And there are some people who have the gift of prophecy. And I say, well, there's a bunch of people that are just running around telling the future. That's not what it means. Uh, what, it, what it is, is that would be concerned more of people who are forthtelling of the truth. Yeah. So you have two types of prophecies. You have people who are forthtelling the truth. In other words, it's already established. Uh, it's the job of the person with the gift of prophecy just to exegete this scripture, pull apart the meaning of it, and unfold it for people so it will lead them into greater thinking and greater paths of obedience. That's a gift of prophecy like that, forthtelling. Yeah. The idea of foretelling prophecy is the idea of what we would see with Old Testament prophets. We would see that probably ended with Paul. Yeah. You know, there are no prophets today. Yeah. In fact, you have, if you look at the, by the way, this is interesting here, this little chart we're doing is for our Wednesday night study. We're, we're charting out Ephesians and what all goes on in Ephesians right now. And if you look in Ephesians chapters 2, the end of 2 and 3, you will find that apostles and prophets were gifts that were given by God to the church in order to establish the truth 
and get it moving at the beginning, but then the offices of apostles and prophets passes off the scene, and the only offices that you have left are evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's it. And so those three offices are what are supposed to carry along. Of course, you have elders and deacons that go along, but as far as the equipping ministry of the church uh, is evangelists, pastors, and teachers are what's supposed to be used for the betterment of the church. Well, those are all forth-telling ministries. Apostles and prophets were foretelling ministries. So... Does you you understand the difference? If, well, the, my original question was: Is prophecy always foretelling? And you said no. Context determines meaning. And then you just said prophecy can be. You just said it could be either one: foretelling or foretelling. Right. So foretelling is what's already established. So that's passed away as well. It's nothing future. Well, you might be speaking about future events, but because it's already been chronicled, you're not telling anything new. Let's let's say that and put an asterisk next to it. If somebody tells you they have a word from the Lord, yeah. pull your Bible out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because if it's not from here, no, I wouldn't. I would never argue against that. That I'm just okay. That. Yeah, nobody's putting First Jeremy after Revelation. It's not happening. Yeah. So yeah, that's a dangerous <laughs> thing. But you have a lot of people. Well, the Lord told me this. Okay, let's talk about right exactly how that came about. The Holy Spirit leads you in a way. I can understand that. Yeah. Did he illuminate something that's always been sitting in the pages of your Bible? I can yeah. totally understand that. Yeah. Did he orchestrate circumstances in your life where people were speaking encouragement into your life in order to you for you to be obedient or rebuking you or chastising you or something like that about something need to happen? Yes, I get all those things. No, I was brushing my teeth and I looked over and on the <laughs> toilet was the Lord and he was telling me this thing and we had a conversation about Zimbabwe. No, it didn't happen. That kind of thing. So, yeah, the Lord just doesn't reveal himself like that now. So, any other questions before we branch into 19? We've got five minutes. I don't think we're going through the chapter, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, cities of refuge. When Yahweh, your Elohim, cuts off the nations. Okay, so we're talking about, uh, we're talking about um, Canaanite, Canaan in particular. If you also want to write down next to this for what we're talking about, cities of refuge, he's already dealt with this in chapter 4, verses 41 through 43 briefly, and now he's going to expand a little bit more on what that looks like. And also, if you remember, the Levites, what we saw previously, they have their dwelling place amongst the city of refuge. Uh, so every place that a Levite would dwell, since they have no inheritance, is going to be a city of refuge. Notice, uh, whose land Yahweh your Elohim gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses. You shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which Yahweh your Elohim gives you to possess. Does everybody see that phrase, set aside three cities? Does everybody see that? Yes? Okay. Go down to verse 7. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall set aside three cities for yourself. Does everybody see that? Three cities for yourself. Set aside three cities for yourself. This is what is known as a literary device called an inclusio. Okay? And what an inclusio does is an inclusio will use a particular word or phrase on something in order to stress a unit of thought. It's not like a chiasm where you move forward to a focal point that they want you to get, as we saw previously. Instead, what this is dealing with is just a unit of thought that they want you to take as a whole. And so we have, uh, let's see here, set aside three cities. And what they're pretty much telling you is, and this is usually what I do in my Bible, I give like a rear heavy marker there, and then I will come down here where this inclusio ends, and I will put another heavy marker because 
the exact same thing is being said down at the bottom. So you're, you've, you've got this unit of thoughts that are taken up. Now, why inclusio is important? Because it's something that the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to stress for a particular reason. What that may be was probably way different for a Jewish person reading this than it is for us as the, as the church age. But I will tell you this. It's important that you keep your eyes peeled for inclusios of, of repeated phrases for units of thought because you cannot read the Gospel of John and not become overwhelmed once you know to look for inclusios. They are everywhere. And sometimes they stretch 20 chapters long. And sometimes they stretch across just one sentence. Sometimes they, they stretch 20 verses. But they're everywhere throughout John's gospel. And if you want a fun project to look into, go through and look at the inclusios of the gospel of John. They're very interesting. Let's move on here. Back to verse 2. You shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which Yahweh your Elohim gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which Yahweh your Elohim will give you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee there. Now here's what's interesting. Here's where we get the definition by God of what manslaughter is. It's very important for us to understand. Uh, verse 4. Now, this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live. When he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously. Pay attention to that. As when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Why? Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger. Notice it's emotionally driven and probably rightly so in a situation like that and overtake him because the way is long and take his life. Though he was not deserving of death. Why was he not deserving of death if it's life for life? Look what it says. Since he had not hated him previously. Now pause because this reveals a lot about murder. What does it tell you is the thrust of murder? Intent. Intent, Intent and hatred. Intent and hatred. Man, that's hardcore. Notice this was an accident. And rightly so, the family might want a repayment of blood. Well, that person should die for what they did. Well, hold it. They're not deserving death. Why? Because they were friends. There was no animosity. There wasn't, well, I'm going to get that guy after school. There was none of that going on whatsoever. So you have grace is essentially what it is. A place where this person can go, still live, still thrive, take their family, be successful, that whole type of thing. And even though the situation was horrible, unfortunate, People are distraught and upset about it. God still provides for a means of getting along. Verse 7, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall set aside three cities for yourself. Um, gosh. We have to stop. Makes me mad. I wanted to get to verse 13. I talk too much. Okay. Are there any questions about this? Anything before we pray it up, wrap it up? And then in three weeks we'll meet together again. We're good? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, your word is true, it is serious, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you, God, that he uh, is the almighty judge. I thank you that he is the promised prophet who will speak, and we need to listen to him. Uh, I pray, Lord, over the next couple of weeks, in some way, you would reveal to our hearts maybe where we have been a misstep, 
with our Savior and that you would uh, lead us into greener pastures and that we would humbly come before you confessing our sin and desiring instead for your spirit to add to us uh, those things that we are sorely missing out on because of sin or because of refusal to repent or, or whatever it may be. Uh, Lord, lead us into truth. We pray it, please. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone.